toiling away in factories and in homes. Today, Friday, May 17th, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. American retailers are under pressure to improve factory conditions in Bangladesh's garment industry. Two victims of the building collapse there tell their stories of survival and look to the future. Also pushing for more rights for domestic workers around the globe, including the right to get paid on time. It's quite typical to find a woman who hasn't been paid for three months or six months, but I have interviewed women who haven't been paid for years at a time. And later, visiting and photographing Luke Skywalker's house. One woman's travels to the deserts of North Africa in search of old movie sets. I just find it very poetic to, to see these trashy, cheap materials in the middle of nowhere. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Today in Bangladesh, hundreds of garment factories are up and running again. They'd been closed down by three days of protests over dangerous working conditions. Those protests were sparked by last month's collapse of a building near the capital, Dhaka, which housed five garment factories. That collapse killed more than 1,100 workers. Bangladesh is the world's second biggest exporter of clothing after China and a manufacturing hub for many international brands. Since the collapse of that building, several Western retailers doing business in Bangladesh have signed on to a pact to improve working conditions there. But some American companies, including Walmart, are choosing to develop their own plan to address the issue. We spoke with two survivors of last month's Rana Plaza building collapse. They are 26-year-old Mohammed Soneman, who was in a factory on the sixth floor, and 28-year-old Mili Akhtar, who worked attaching zippers to pants on the second floor. She told me how the day of the collapse began for her. On that day, I didn't want to go to the office. The day before the collapse, a few cracks had developed in the building. That's why I didn't want to go there. But I had to go. Because if I was absent from work, then I wouldn't get paid. So I went to the factory in the morning. I was so sure the factory would suspend production that I didn't even bother to bring lunch with me. Outside the building, all of us workers were gathered outside. Many didn't want to go inside. But the factory supervisors and production managers assured us that there was no problem. We didn't want to work because of the cracks that had developed the day before. But the supervisors forced us to get inside. We were scared and I couldn't concentrate on my work. One of my colleagues who was working near me told me that the building cracks turned worse than previous day. He showed me the cracks. As soon as I saw the cracks, I got scared. I, I just took my burqa covering and started running to get out of the building. When I reached the stairs, the building collapsed. I fell on the floor and tried to stand up, but again I fell down. The main gate was open and luckily I managed to get out of the rubble. I got out of the building myself on my own. Nobody rescued me. Uh, Mohammed, I gather you were stuck in the building uh, quite some time, uh, three and a half hours. Tell us what happened to you and how you survived. We had worked for an hour. Then there was a power cut and the backup generator for six floors were turned on. Then it didn't take two minutes and all the six garment floors were smashed down to one. 
but some pillars and machines created gaps in a few places. That's where we survived. Were you injured? A pillar broke on my foot, so I was injured. It did not cut me, but it did a bit. It mashed me and crushed me. I still have pain while I'm walking. Did you have any friends or colleagues who were trapped inside the building? One of my cousins died. Her body is still missing. And another cousin was badly injured. The doctors amputated her leg. She's still getting treatment. Mohammed, whom do you blame for this accident and, and what should happen to them? The owners are responsible. I want the building and the factory owners hanged to death. Do you blame the companies in the West for targeting Bangladesh because it has cheaper labor? We take whatever we are given as salary. We have to do hard work in the garment factory. It's the factory owners who deprive us. They are responsible. Now that the Rana Plaza factory is destroyed, what will you do now? In a few days, I'll have to work again. We are poor people. Whatever the situation is, we have to find work. That was Mili Akhtar and before her, Mohammed Soneiman. They are garment workers and two of the very lucky survivors of last month's Rana Plaza building collapse in Bangladesh. Dangerous conditions for poorly paid workers in a shoddy garment factory are not acceptable, but at least you can see the problems these workers face. Not so for millions around the globe who make up what's sometimes called the world's largest invisible workforce. We're talking domestic workers, nannies, house cleaners, caregivers, most of them immigrants and women. This week, as part of our Global Nation coverage, we've been hearing their stories. Our final story today takes place here in Boston, where domestic workers and their employers are testing new ways to settle disputes outside of a courtroom. The world's Nina Porzuki has a story. How are you? Good to see you. On a recent Saturday afternoon, a dozen women, nannies and house cleaners, many immigrants from Brazil, gather with employers in a living room in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They snack on cheese and crackers, breaking the ice a bit before talking about how to tackle some of the work troubles that can bubble up. They said they would pay me for the gas and the mileage. They did that the first week, and I'm there almost 10 months now, and I haven't seen any more money about it. And I don't know what to do. Anna Amarel from Brazil is a nanny in Boston. As she talks, several women in the room nod their head and offer advice. They may not remember it as you do, Anna. They really may not. You have a conversation. I'm talking right now, you'll remember 30% of it, and it'll come out of your mouths in your own words. It's definitely an issue that could go to mediation. That's Lydia Edwards, a lawyer at the Brazilian Immigrant Center here. She's fierce in the courtroom, but her goal here is to try to find ways to settle disputes between domestic workers and employers outside of the courtroom. The process seems simple. A worker brings a complaint to the center about, say, a wage issue, the center contacts the employer to see if they'd like to meet with trained mediators to find a solution instead of resorting to legal action. And the mediators know these conflicts well because they're domestic workers and employers themselves. I wanted to figure out a way that workers could be a part of the resolution of their own issues. Edwards started the project after the downtown Boston law firm where she'd worked downsized. Out of a job, she volunteered her legal expertise at the center, setting up a law office in the center's kitchen. She met with hundreds of Brazilians at that kitchen table, house cleaners and nannies. She realized laws about minimum wage and meal breaks don't always protect these workers. Fighting over whether tricky treating time is payment time or not, which I've had to do in court, 
where they're making a meal and eating some of it now negates you from getting paid for that. I've had those fights in court. Edwards also realized that workers weren't always seeking a big settlement, rather something else. Sometimes people are coming to me and I notice as a lawyer, what you want, I couldn't give you anyway in court. At the beginning, what I just was looking for actually was for an apology. Again, Nanny Ana Amaral. She first met Edwards at the Brazilian Center for help about unpaid wages, a common complaint for these workers. But it wasn't money that upset Amaral, rather how her employer treated her. She lashed out at me in, in the library in front of other friends, other nannies, in front of the librarians. Amaral did go to court in the end, and she won. But it still didn't feel resolved. These feelings are natural because of the intimacy of domestic work, says Edwards. They took care of your children from birth sometime. They, like, really love and care for your parents, and vice versa. Like, you've had such an intense, intimate bond. Edwards argues that, in some cases, talking it out might help prevent a courtroom battle. Back in that Cambridge living room, the women hold a mock mediation between an employer, Peter, and Johnny, the caregiver for Peter's elderly father. Amaral practices mediating the case. So whatever you share here, if you don't want us to share in front of Johnny, that is totally up to you. But we just would like to try to understand more what you're coming from when you say that is a lot in, in your, on your shoulders right now. Is that okay? So far, the center has successfully mediated five cases. A slow start, partly because people don't know that mediation is a legal tool. But Edwards hopes that'll change as word spreads. No one should be working in the dark or feeling undervalued. Meanwhile, other advocates for domestic workers are following this project's progress. In an industry that can lack protection, there's a search for other options. For The World, I'm Nina Porzuki in Boston. You can hear another story of a domestic worker who felt invisible and now has a voice because of mediation. We've got a video at theworld.org. Domestic workers balance a complex set of relationships, whether they're employed here in the U.S. or somewhere else around the globe. Nisha Varia is a senior researcher at Human Rights Watch. She's worked closely with maids and nannies who are struggling to, fr- who are struggling to form an international movement. There is this invisible army of workers who've really been left out of the key labor protections that most other workers have been able to take for granted. Tell us about a few of the countries where maids, nannies, and house cleaners have seen the most dramatic improvements in their lives. One of the biggest breakthroughs this year has been Brazil, which has adopted a constitutional amendment to make sure that domestic workers enjoy the same rights as other workers. Important protections such as social security, such as uh, limits to their hours of work. And we're seeing incremental changes in other places. For example, in Singapore, domestic workers are still not covered under the labor law. But for a long time, the government resisted giving these workers the guarantee of a day off. A few years ago, they finally allowed these workers to have a day off once a month. And as of January this year, domestic workers are entitled to a day off once a week. We've seen really strong movements in Latin America. But on the other hand, in places where workers are not free to organize, it's been much more difficult to see any progress. And that's where we see some of the worst conditions for domestic workers, such as in the Middle East. Right. Describe some of those, because I'm not sure our listeners will will have a complete, clear picture of what bad conditions for domestic workers are in some of the worst places around the world. 
There are millions of domestic workers, primarily from Indonesia and the Philippines and Sri Lanka, who migrate as domestic workers to countries such as Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. Almost every household has a domestic worker who is living with them in their household. These women often work 16 to 18 hours a day, seven days a week. They are on two-year contracts, and they may not have a day off in that entire time. They come on a specialized domestic worker visa that ties them to their employer. And what this means is that they cannot change their job without the permission of their employer. And in some cases, they're not even allowed to leave the country without the permission of their employer. Nisha, as you trudge through many of these depressing details of domestic workers' lives, is there one story that you've encountered that keeps you motivated to keep working on this issue? One example is Myrtle Whitboy. She's a woman from South Africa, and it's been really great to see this woman who was once a domestic worker, now a national leader. She is a prominent voice on labor rights in South Africa. Every time I hear her speak, I see that the way she draws from her personal experience, the way that she inspires other domestic workers from other countries, that's been really great. I think what we're seeing now is a cross-fertilization of ideas and strategies. It requires a lot of creativity to think about how to advance domestic workers' rights. It's always hard for me to believe how poorly so many domestic workers are treated when they are the ones taking care of our children, taking care of our elderly parents, taking care of our homes. We should treat with respect and gratitude the women who are taking care of these most important parts of our lives. Yeah, a long road ahead. I think the stories we've been hearing in our Global Nation coverage this week certainly underscores that. Nisha Varia, senior researcher at Human Rights Watch who focuses on the plight of domestic workers worldwide. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Still ahead on the world, going local, seriously local, as in places where the only locals are the sounds on Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of WomenHeart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The nation of South Sudan is not quite two years old. The world's newest country was created in July 2011 after decades of fighting a civil war against the North. But South Sudan is now facing its own internal rebellion, and the army there is being accused of terrorizing its own people in the eastern state of Jongle. Kaylin Briggs is with Refugees International in Juba, the capital of South Sudan. She's been traveling through Jongle, talking to people affected by the crisis there. We were speaking to people yesterday that had fled their homes as a result of what was really a a campaign of terror by the South Sudanese armed forces against the civilian population. Over the past three weeks, we've seen widespread looting by government forces, large-scale attacks on civilian populations, burning of houses, and the civilians have have pretty much all fled at this point into the bush. And this, this has been complicated over the past week by threats by a rebel group to attack the town. And following that threat, all of the humanitarian organizations have been evacuated. So at this point, the main town that we're talking about, Pibor Town, is basically deserted. We don't know what the humanitarian situation is at this point, but we fear that we have a pretty serious crisis on our hands. 
So just for clarity, the Sudanese People's Liberation Army, the SPLA, that was the rebel army that was fighting on behalf of the South before it became an independent nation. Is the military still referred to as the SPLA? It is, yes. So what's motivating the government forces? I mean, the SPLA, they're supposed to defend these people. Why are they going in and raiding these villages? The government soldiers haven't been paid in three months. So just like everyone else, they need water, they need shelter. And so in the absence of that being provided for them, they're just going out and taking it. But it also comes down to the fact that Jongle State historically has had a lot of ethnic tensions. And the government soldiers that are operating in that area are from an ethnic group that historically has clashed with the ethnic population of this town. But really, in the end, a lot of it just comes down to a breakdown in the chain of command. Uh, it's, it's showing us that the military leadership doesn't have control or perhaps doesn't want to control the soldiers that are operating in, in the east. And how many people are we talking about? How many people have fled? So Pibor Town is estimated to have about 10,000 people. And right now, the town is, is basically completely empty. So we're talking about 10,000 people that we know are in the bush. But Pibor County, the greater Pibor area, has about 140,000 people. And right now, the humanitarian community, the UN, and the peacekeepers as well, don't have access to any of that area. So we know that there are thousands of people who are hiding in the bush, but we really don't know what's going on for the remaining 140,000 in the more remote areas. And making things even more complicated for the refugees, I gather, is that the rainy season is about to start. Yeah, so the rainy season is a huge concern for us right now. Once the rains start, for these thousands of people that are hiding in the bush, those areas are going to be underwater. So any access they did have to food or shelter is basically going to be compromised. Additionally, we expect to see a huge spike in disease once the rains come. Cholera will become a much more significant issue. Hepatitis E, we're already seeing outbreaks of. And it does mean that we will just have absolutely no access to these displaced populations. So what can you and Refugees International do to help this situation, especially if the people you're supposed to be monitoring are nowhere to be found? What we're trying to do is spread awareness that this is going on. Find the people that have influence over the government of South Sudan and get them to push the government to get the military to stop committing human rights abuses against the civilians and to improve the humanitarian access to these areas. There was a 14-year-old girl that stepped on a landmine, and she was so scared to come into Pibor town because of these government soldiers that she opted to stay in the bush instead of seeking medical treatment. So this is pretty indicative of, of a very serious problem. And did she survive uh, her time in the bush? It's unknown right now. She did make it into town. There was a brief window of calm when a lot of civilians were able to come in. And what we saw during those three days was a lot of children coming in, a lot of children with gunshot wounds, a lot of children with landmine injuries. When the NGOs were still there, they've been trying to medevac a lot of people out of Jongle. But our information as to the majority of those people is still a bit unclear. Kaylin Briggs is with Refugees International. She's been speaking with us from the capital of South Sudan, Juba. Kaylin, thanks for your time. Thanks very much. Now, when I say the word ruins, you probably think crumbling buildings, broken statues, an old marble column, right? Does old movie set figure into your thoughts? Probably not. And yet there are ruins of old movie sets across North Africa where big budget movie makers have gone in to shoot scenes with sometimes very elaborate sets, and then they just leave them there. One Italian artist has taken numerous trips to document what's been left behind. The world's Clark Boyd has our story. 
Long, long ago, in a galaxy far, far away, and by that I mean 1977, a fresh-faced farm boy named Luke Skywalker stepped out of his uncle's house in the middle of a bleak desert planet called Tatooine and looked wistfully at two setting suns. Star Wars was more than just a box office hit. For a whole generation, my generation, it was a seminal moment. Ra DiMartino remembers it well, too. It was one of the first films I watched. I think I was, must have been four, and I really loved and watched it many times. You know, it was an eerie and well-shot film that actually left a lot in me. You know, it was, it was a fun film, but it had beautiful images. Particularly those desert shots. They created an entirely new world. No, seriously, George Lucas went to locations across North Africa, to the very edge of the desert, to have the sets built. And Ra DiMartino, a visual artist, was kicking around on Google Earth a few years back when she spotted something that looked familiar in some tourist photos that had been uploaded. The old Star Wars sets, well, parts of them, were still there in the desert. I couldn't believe my eyes because obviously it seemed incredible that there was, you know, some actual um, real material objects that remained of such a big film that made, you know, a lot of my... um, my memories from childhood, you know. DiMartino knew that the sets have been photographed before and that fans know all about the Star Wars ruins. We've talked about it on The World a couple of times. But she didn't want to document the sets. Instead, she wanted to capture what these ruins say about us and about how we remember. I just found it very poetic to, to see these trashy, cheap materials in the middle of nowhere, to see how these you know, ruins decayed in such a fast way compared to our memory of it. So, a few years ago, she embarked on a series of trips to Tunisia and Morocco to photograph the old film sets. She found the house Luke Skywalker lived in. It's in Tunisia, and it was falling apart. In Morocco, she photographed a man begging in the ruins of one Star Wars set. The film grossed hundreds of millions of dollars. Since she did her photo series, certain sands have shifted. One set that had been covered, and then uncovered, in sandstorms, has been almost covered again. And, thanks to crowdfunding, Star Wars fans refurbished the Skywalker house. DiMartino says it proves her point. These memories are so strong in us that we don't really realize how much they formed us. You know, and if you think that adult people actually go and as their main hobby go and refurbish, Something like this, which is so useless, you know, but at the same time, I can sort of understand it. They probably had lots of fun, you know. Meanwhile, she wryly notes, in her native Italy, the ruins of Pompeii are crumbling, and little effort is being made to save them. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. If you can visualize Rod DiMartino's photos of old Star Wars sets, and clearly the Force is with you. If you can't, then come on by theworld.org. You can see them there. News headlines are coming up next here on The World. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up on The World, why dictators get enraged when they're depicted by political cartoonists. They want to be thought of as these kind of mad people who can wreck and destroy your lives, what they don't want to be thought of as an ass. And later, looking for the boy from Ipanema. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Womenheart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. There's disturbing news out of Oxford, England, that has echoes of several recent news stories here in the U.S. Seven men in Oxford have been found guilty of rape, trafficking, and arranging a child prostitution ring. The convicts have roots in Pakistan and North Africa. They're victims as young as 11. The abuse had apparently been going on for eight years. Sarah Thornton is the local police chief whose department handled the investigation. She apologized this week for not bringing the perpetrators to justice sooner. I accept responsibility, and as I've said, I'm very sorry that it took so long to get this case to court. But the focus has got to be on moving forward. We've got joint working with the county council. We've raised the awareness of our officers, and we've put more resources to this really important area of child protection. Along with the police chief, members of Oxford's Muslim community are doing some soul-searching of their own, wondering how the abusers were able to commit their crimes for so long. Talat Ahmed chairs the Social and Family Affairs Committee of the Muslim Council of Britain. It's essential not to categorize these crimes in terms of race and religion. And the simple fact is that these are abhorrent acts committed by sick and depraved men. It's affects every community and all communities need to do something to address these issues. However, we need to be clear that one case amongst the British Muslims is one too many. And therefore, the Muslim Council of Britain and its affiliates are taking this very seriously. We do recognise that there are one too many of Muslim background who are guilty of these activities. So that's why we're organizing a grassroots initiative to look at the reasons why this is happening. Why do you think it's happening, Talat Ahmed, and what specific attitudes do you, do you want to see changed? Well, in order to raise awareness about these issues, what we're hoping to do is um, you know, discuss the facts around the extent of the problems of child and sexual exploitation, what support is available to victims from social services, from charities, And more importantly, I think we also need to explore how we can identify and prevent potential perpetrators of such criminality, because that is worrying in itself. Why are boys and men, why do they look at women in such a degrading manner? You know, Americans who hear this story may think of the three young women held captive for up to 10 years in Cleveland. But perhaps a more apt analogy uh, is the mosque in my own city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, which had distanced itself from the older of the two Boston Marathon bombing suspects, uh, Tamerlan Tsarnaev. Um, yes. And in fact, they had pushed him away from the mosque some time ago before the bombings. How would you characterize Muslims policing themselves here, there in the UK? Is it kind of disdain for people who do bad things? Or do you see it kind of as a self-defense against the suspicious attitudes that have been pervasive since 9-11? I think there's this notion of shame which the Muslim community feels for people who commit un-Islamic acts, which they are. They're not behaving in any way that's credit to a good Muslim. So it's difficult. However, there needs to be awareness amongst the Muslim community that criminalities go on in whatever form or shape it is. And, And those need to be addressed. It's very important to know that in order to produce a good and healthy community, a thriving community. We need to understand what the social ills are, what attitudes there are, and and to understand young people. It's very important not to assume that they will be like the older generation. Times are changing, and young people think differently to the older generation, and they have to be more in tune to that. 
What's your own experience within the Muslim community uh, of dealing with these issues? I don't actually have personal experience. This is something that has come to our attention and thought, well, we as Muslim Council of Britain is an umbrella organisation representing over 500 Muslim organisations. If we can reach our communities at the grassroots level, then that can only be a good thing in terms of changing attitudes, raising awareness and driving out these horrific crimes against all children. Well, Talat Ahmed of the Muslim Council of Britain, thanks for your time. No, you're welcome. Thank you. Sometimes you hear something on this show that you don't agree with or you think is just plain wrong, and you let us know. You call, email, comment on our Facebook page, or send us a tweet. If we've made a mistake, we try to correct it. But what if you're the subject of a political cartoon and you disagree with it? What can you do? Redraw the cartoon? Well, not likely. One longtime editor thinks that sense of frustration is why political cartoons can sometimes provoke such anger. The world's Carol Hills has more. For decades, Victor Navasky was editor and publisher of The Nation. It's considered the flagship of the left, so you can imagine the kinds of debates that have raged in that newsroom. But Navasky says only one time during his years at The Nation did the staff actually revolt. They walked in his office and demanded that something not be published. And it wasn't an article. Navasky says it was a cartoon about Henry Kissinger by the celebrated caricaturist David Levine. Kissinger was on top, the world was on bottom in the form of a woman with a globe where her face would have been, and Kissinger was, in the words of David Levine. You get the idea. Navasky heard all the arguments against it, that it was sexist, etc., but he published it anyway. That was in 1984. Then came the Muhammad cartoon controversy in 2005. A Danish newspaper published 12 cartoons depicting the prophet. Riots ensued in several Muslim countries. There were 200 reported deaths, attacks on Danish embassies, and boycotts. Navasky remembers one cartoon in response to the controversy. It was by French satirist Plantu. The Plantu cartoon showed an artist's hand and his pen, and he was writing over and over, I must not draw Muhammad, I must not draw Muhammad, he says it a hundred times. And by the time he's finished, his sentences have drawn Muhammad. Navasky began wondering what was it about cartoons and caricature that could incite people to violence? His new book, The Art of Controversy, Political Cartoons and Their Enduring Power, attempts to answer that. It shows, among other things, that political leaders have been raging about their depictions and cartoons since at least the time of Napoleon. He, by the way, was furious with English caricaturist James Gilray, saying he did more than all the armies in Europe to bring me down. In the book, Navasky also introduces us to a selection of political cartoonists from the 18th century to the present who have incited the wrath of the powerful. Their fates varied. Some were left alone. Others were pressured, occasionally sued, some beaten, and a few murdered. David Lowe is a well-known caricaturist who made his career in Britain. Navasky says his cartoons about Hitler made the Nazi leader apoplectic. After the war, Lowe's name was found on Hitler's death list. Navasky believes it was how Lowe portrayed Hitler that made him so mad. In one, Lowe draws Hitler as a spoiled brat playing with blocks, each block representing a European country. And he once explained that the reason that he thought that Hitler and most dictators got upset, they want to be thought of as these kind of mad people who can wreck and destroy your lives, what they don't want to be thought of as an ass. 
Navasky says cartoons and caricature are by definition exaggerations that usually focus on physical features, and that gives them staying power. People remember them. Navasky points out that the only German condemned to death at Nuremberg who was not part of the Nazi high command was Julius Streicher, the publisher of the anti-Semitic newspaper Der Stürmer. The tabloid was best known for its grotesque anti-Semitic caricatures. The power of Der Stürmer came from those cartoons. The covers were displayed on the equivalent of newsstands throughout the city during those years and established the image of the Jew. And Der Stürmer was blamed for it without Nuremberg particularly focusing and mentioning the cartoons in the indictment. But I believe, nevertheless, that's why he was condemned to death. Studying the history of political cartoons has humbled Navasky. He's been a free speech champion his entire life, and that includes cartoons. But now he realizes that some images can be too powerful. You can't control how they're interpreted. When he started this book, Navasky assumed he'd include those Danish Muhammad cartoons. But after talking to his publisher, he conceded it was a good idea to leave them out. He realized it wasn't worth putting people at risk. For The World, I'm Carol Hills. You can see Victor Navasky in a video with some iconic political cartoons from the past 400 years at theworld.org. There are beautiful beaches on every continent, but some places are endowed with more than their fair share of seaside beauty. One of those places is Rio de Janeiro. So for our GeoQuiz today, we want you to name two of Rio's gorgeous beaches, One was named Sexiest Beach in the World recently by the Travel Channel. The other is Rio's Longest Beach, stretching for 11 miles and favored by surfers for its excellent waves. You have just a few seconds to compile your list. Okay, here we go. Rio's longest beach is Baja da Tijuca, and the sexiest one is Ipanema. Like many beaches around the world, Ipanema is really subdivided into many smaller beaches. Different sorts of people hang out on different stretches of sand. And in a country where being gay can still mean getting harassed or ostracized, Ipanema has a section that's welcoming to gays. The world's Jason Margolis sent us this postcard about the so-called tribes of Rio's famous Ipanema Beach. Ipanema is about a two-mile stretch of beautiful sand and water. At one end, two jagged mountains jut up like thimbles. Women stroll the beach wearing skimpy thong bikinis. Many of the men wear skimpy bikini bottoms, too. The jingle of a guy carrying large steel drums of iced tea or an alcoholic drink is never far off. The beach is marked by numbered lifeguard posts, or poshtus, every half mile. The locals know where they belong. Here's 21-year-old Bernardo. I come to post 8 because it's the best part of the beach. It's very different from all other parts. And there are the gay people here. And I'm gay, so... Do you feel more comfortable here? Yes, very much. Here is an extension of my house. I feel as comfortable as I feel at home. Bernardo says he always runs into friends here. Today, he ran into Harry, a 26-year-old in a tiny Speedo with hearts on it. Harry's in ridiculously good shape. He comes here a lot. Almost every day, yeah. I like to keep my sentence, you know. <laughs> um, do you always come to this area or do you try yes. different beaches? Yes, I mean, I, I just feel more comfortable in this environment. The other ones I don't feel like as comfortable. Why? 
Well, it's just not like the same crowd, you know, like people just look at you like in a different way because we're in a tiny little speedo or, you know, just being a little bit out there. So that's already difference. Nearby is 30-year-old Artu Leandro with his partner. He doesn't come to the beach that often, but he says when he does, he can relax at post 8. He doesn't always feel that way in the rest of Rio. He says approval of gay people, it's fake, it's a facade. He says disapproval is even harder when it comes from within the family. And he says sometimes you feel that disapproval at other parts of the beach, too. He says he used to go to Post 9, but there were some things he didn't like. He says people would look at him funny when they saw two gay men together. Post 9 is known as the hip alternative area. This is where the pot smokers congregate. You can rent a chair or umbrella from Marco Antonio de Souza Brindao, a friendly guy who's holding a joint. He's been working this spot for more than a dozen years. De segunda a segunda. <laughs> Every Monday to Monday, he jokes. He says this is where the whistleblowers hang out. When the police used to come, people blew whistles. Then everyone would hide their marijuana. I spoke with one man nearby who was smoking a joint. He's been busted by the police twice. He doesn't want to give his name. He says the police don't really bother them anymore at Post 9 because everybody protects each other. There were three 16-year-old girls at Post 9 as well, Runa, Beatriz, and Luisa. They tell me a lot of teenagers hang out here. I had to ask about the dope thing. One of them says, just because we're here, that doesn't mean we're smoking dope. Another adds, we know they smoke between the two coconut trees, so we stay away from there. Scroll a little further along the beach, and soon you're in post-10 territory, and the vibe again is noticeably different. This area is known for a mix of older and wealthier people, along with families with small children. 32-year-old Flavio Lovo hangs out here. And we're all with our kids, usually at least for the last three years. Before that, we used to go to Garcia, to Joan Angelica, which is number nine. So now you have little kids, you've graduated from number nine, you come here, is that how it works? <laughs> Almost like that, almost like that. When you have kids, you want some peace, you know, and you come here. Because uh, there you happen to maybe be robbed or mugged or uh, even the marijuana issue, which is like uh, reality. I also met two brothers in their early 20s at Post 10. I asked them if they're a little young for this area. John Pedro nods, yeah, but he prefers it here because it's less crowded than Post 9. And he says there's a group of gay men at Post 8, which he doesn't like. Then there was Rosalia, a woman probably in her 50s. She's been coming to the beach in Ipanema for a long time. Since I have, I have no memory. <laughs> Since three years. I asked her how people choose their beach tribes, if you're not a stoner or a gay guy or a teenager. I mean, how does she decide where to go? She points over at some apartment buildings. When I was a little child, uh, my parents lived there. So. so sometimes you don't choose your beach tribe, it chooses you. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Rio de Janeiro. To see a photo of Harry, that young man in ridiculously good shape, plus some of the thong bikinis, volleyball players, stoners, and the other tribe wildlife of Ipanema, we've got a slideshow at theworld.org.
This is The World from PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. When I hear music like this, I often wonder where it came from. What was the inspiration? Well, we do know what inspired this particular piece of music. Kevin James composed it. He lives in New York City. And for the past few years, James has been working on something he calls the Vanishing Languages Project. He starts with recordings of endangered languages, ones with very few, or in one case, no remaining native speakers. These recordings trigger musical ideas that become extended string and percussion pieces. Recently, James debuted his latest work in Brooklyn and San Francisco. He says he first started thinking about the power of endangered languages in his teens. It was the 1970s, and he was watching a documentary about Australian Aboriginal land rights trials. In the documentary, an Aboriginal man prepared to testify. The man was the last native speaker of his language, and James recalls how this man insisted on giving testimony in his language without translation. And it was beautiful. And at the end of his testimony, it was clear that everyone in the courtroom was very moved. And the the judges seemed to come to the conclusion that it was better to hear it given in his own language than it could have been translated. Mainly because of the obvious emotion and the sense that this was the last person who could speak this language. And it was such a lovely language, such a really beautiful language the sense that this was going to be lost along with his land, that his culture and his language would be lost as well. It came across as a gift to have heard this language spoken one more time. Vanishing Languages Project began about uh, six years ago. I like for my music whenever possible to capture a moment, a historical moment, a time on earth, And this was timely. Uh, We expect to lose at least half the world's languages before the end of the century. I focused on four different languages. The Kulu language, which is from the Pacific Northwest. The Kulu language has a more of a cadence to it. There's also a lot of exclamation. The Ainu language, which is uh, from Hokkaido, the northern island of Japan. The Ainu language uh, has a lot of melody in it in terms of range, but it's also a lot of, of stops and starts. And then two uh, Australian Aboriginal languages, Talabon and Jalon, which are based in Arnhem Land, which is in the, the northern part of Australia. They're very quickly spoken, they're very melodic, and they, a lot of the language, the Dalaban language, seemed to me to imitate animal sounds. The concept behind this project was to take those qualities, to take the inflections, and use those as the basis of music, rather than most music is based on physics. Um, how, how many divisions of a second can you make? And how do you count that time? And it's regular. 
that time is regular. You beat out a beat, you keep that beat, you can make it a little faster, a little slower. But when we speak, the inflection is much more fluid. And the same is true of the melodic aspects of a lot of languages um, in terms of how much register they cover. In each of the pieces, the musicians are asked at certain points to mimic actual words or actual sounds of the language. But the mirroring of the language was the springboard, it was the jumping off place. The point of the piece was to extend that musically and to take those phrases and see how far I could go with them. For these pieces, I really do prefer that the audience experience be as pure as possible. I mean, for me, my first experience was not understanding and nobody understanding what was being spoken. And that being a very pure and revealing experience. I find people, when they don't have a visual to back up the audio, that they go searching um, and that they assign their own meetings. And, I think that's a more meaningful experience than them listening and picturing somebody cooking. <laughs> I think it's more meaningful for them to find their own, their own um, place for that, their own visual for that, their own set of context in, their, in terms of their own experience. A taste there of the Ainu language from northern Japan. Kevin James of the Vanishing Languages Project spoke to producer Bruce Wallace. For more on these and many other languages, check out our language podcast, The World in Words. You can find it at theworld.org. For one final dose of indigenous sounds, we're going to leave you in one of the richest places on earth for local music, Timbuktu. Chers membres de la délégation nationale, chers festivaliers, mesdames et messieurs, bonsoir. The decade-old festival in the desert in Timbuktu and northern Mali has featured incredible artists from the region, playing some of the coolest indigenous music on earth. But this year's festival didn't happen because of the rebellion in the north of Mali and the imposition of Sharia law. The rebels literally outlawed music. Even a slightly musical ringtone could land you in serious trouble. So as an alternative, we can offer the sounds of the last time the festival convened, January 2012. A compilation of songs from that edition has just come out, live from Festival Au Désert, Timbuktu. Here's a taste of one artist from the new live CD, the incredible string playing of Baseku Kuyate. (laughs) 
life in Timbuktu and northern Mali is easier now after French troops helped the Malian army rout militants earlier this year. But many locals worry the conflict will return. We'll be sure to keep you up to date on the story. For today, that's our program. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios, I'm Marco Werman, tweeting at Marco Werman. The World tweets at PRI The World. We'd love to hear from you. Enjoy your weekend and see you back here Monday. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.